For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. March 28, 1939. A crowd of 3,000 has gathered at the Chicago Coliseum on Wabash Avenue. The building had actually been moved to Chicago from Virginia, brick by brick. It used to be a Confederate prison. But on this day in 1939, the building is hosting a basketball game. The championship game for the Chicago Herald Americans World Professional Basketball Tournament. These are still the early days of professional basketball. The NBA won't begin for another seven years. This tournament in Chicago is the season's main event. The team that wins will be considered the best in the world. On one side of the court, you've got the Oshkosh All-Stars from Wisconsin. On the other, the New York Rens. The All-Stars are an all-white team The Wrens are all black. This game, it is the first time that a black team and a white team will officially compete for the top spot in professional basketball. Inside the walls of this former Confederate prison, the New York Wrens will try to take the title. I'm Sally Helm, and this is History This Week. Today, the story of a groundbreaking team. A lot of the players today don't know about the Wrens. They don't know about them. The Wrens paved the way for the NBA as we know it. They made great inroads into integration. People that I call fence-sitters, people that weren't quite sure about this segregation thing, that said, you know, there's something wrong here with this picture. Why can't we all play together? Who were the New York Wrens? And when a black team and a white team faced off in a championship for the first time in basketball history, who took home the title? Hey, sleepyhead. Why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. And here's Giannis all the way. James Harden with his eighth Today, the NBA is really racially diverse. Around 80% of players are people of color. But that wasn't always the case. In the early 1900s, what is the state of integration in sports in the U.S.? It didn't 
exist. This is Susan Rail, a professor of sports history at the State University of New York at Cortland. Baseball had initially had African Americans involved, but in the 1880s, there'll be a, quote, gentleman's agreement not to sign any more black players. Boxing was participated in by African Americans, but typically at the heavyweight level, African Americans were not allowed because that was the, the best of the best. Professional basketball was segregated, too. And it was still a relatively new sport. It had been invented in 1891 by James Naismith. In those early days, they didn't even play with hoops yet. Players were laying up the ball into peach baskets with a little hole at the bottom. And after every score, you had to poke the ball out of the basket with this long rod. The ball would have been leather and it would have had laces on it. And it would create some interesting situations when it comes down on the ground and hits those laces because it would rebound in a very unreal fashion. You wouldn't know where it would go. The game was still in its infancy. But this is the sport that a man named Bob Douglas will fall in love with. Douglas was born in the late 1800s on the Caribbean island of St. Kitts. In St. Kitts, they played soccer, what we call soccer, football, cricket, and swimming. He said he was a fantastic swimmer. That was his sport. Douglas had never seen basketball played. But then at the age of 19, he emigrated to the U.S. on his own. He was working as a doorman in Harlem, pulling 12-hour shifts, earning $4 a week. Then one day in 1905, a co-worker took him to a gym on 52nd Street. And he saw basketball for the first time. He later said it was the most fantastic game I had ever seen. Douglas starts playing, but he's really a businessman at heart. And he eventually becomes the general manager of two amateur Harlem-based teams, all black teams. But he's having trouble attracting top talent. First of all, the amateur players can't officially get paid. And so to make some real money, many of the city's best black basketball players were actually also playing professional baseball, which meant they were ineligible for the amateur basketball league that Douglas was working in. And so Douglas just got fed up with the whole thing. He said, this is crazy. This just created an all-professional team. And so that's what he did. Bob Douglas founded the New York Rents. He was the first Black man to own a professional basketball team. Wrens, by the way, it's not the bird. It's spelled R-E-N. And the name comes from the place where they played, the Renaissance Ballroom and Casino. Renaissance Ballroom, the Wrens. It was a promotional thing, like when a football bowl game today is named after a car insurance company or something. The Wrens played in this ballroom. Navy and gold uniforms, 9.30 p.m. sharp, up to four nights a week. And Harlem Society came out to see them. The casino ballroom catered to middle and upper class people. They drew from all ethnicities. It was a wonderful setup. The people came to not only watch basketball, but to also dance and to have dinner. The court was set up on the dance floor. And the crowd came to expect a signature style of play from the Wrens. Every man was always moving. They passed the ball around like a hot potato. 
Scoring was not a priority, so point totals were low. But it was thrilling to watch. And then when the game was over, they would remove the basketball standards and there's the dance floor. You'd get a basketball game and a night of dancing for 55 cents. They were playing both black teams and white teams and winning tons of games. In fact, Professor Rail told us that when they played all white teams, they sometimes deliberately held back, made sure that they didn't win by too many points. Because it wasn't good business to crush these white teams. They wanted to be invited back to play them again. There were some teams that gave them a run for their money. In fact, a rival team emerged right in New York, an all-white team considered the best in the country at the time, the original Celtics. They'll start to play the original Celtics in 1925, not to be confused with the Boston Celtics. Yeah, these Celtics were no relation to the modern team. Their matchups with the Wrens drew huge crowds. People wanted to see an all-white team play an all-black team. By the way, these games weren't happening in an official league. They were exhibition games. And they were good business. But then in 1929, the Great Depression hit. People didn't have money to spend on a night of basketball and dancing. When the ballroom wasn't getting a lot of business in the early 30s, there was a choice to either fold or to just go on the road. It was just, okay, what do we have to do now to survive? So the Wrens started traveling through the Northeast, the Midwest, and the South. They went around on a bus, which was nicknamed the Blue Goose. They were winning from day one. They'll have seasons such as 120 wins and eight losses. They would draw large crowds. And especially in the 1930s, when you have a black and white matchup, everybody wanted to see who was better. The Wrens played local teams in the towns they visited, but they also played their hometown rivals, the Celtics. They'd been forced on the road, too. And life on the road was different from life in New York. There was one notable game that happened in Louisville, Kentucky. The story is that Joe Lapchick kissed Tarzan Cooper on the cheek and the game the next day was not held. Lapchick played for the Celtics, Cooper for the Reds. And crowds thought it was scandalous to see this white player kiss this black player. After that game, it actually became a tradition for the two of them to embrace on the court, sometimes even kiss. They were challenging these crowds, pushing against the racist norms of the time. And in five instances, Wren's Celtics games actually led to race riots. They sometimes had to put up nets around the court to keep an angry crowd from attacking the players. And off the court? As you might guess, they did face uh, some challenges on the road with trying to travel, where they could eat. A lot of times they were not admitted to restaurants. They could order in the back, you know, go out the back door. A lot of hotels wouldn't take them, especially in more rural areas. So they'd often stay in the city and travel way far out to get to their games. They would stay in a place in Chicago. They'd go to different places, which might take three, four hours to get there. And then they would go back to Chicago to spend the night or, you know, whatever was left of the early morning hours. So traveling on the road was really tough. 
If they couldn't make it back to the city in time, they sometimes stayed in jails because those were the safest places in town. They had to watch where they went. They had to know, you know, what roads they could take and what roads they couldn't. The players sometimes got fed up with all this. Things were better back home in Harlem, where the Harlem Renaissance was happening. Black writers and artists and musicians were producing some of the most culturally important work in American history. Things obviously weren't perfect in New York, but life was easier for Black men there than it was in the Jim Crow South. In 1936, a young guy named John Isaacs joined the Wrens. He'd grown up in Harlem and had been one of New York City's top high school players. Bob Douglas gave him the nickname Wonder Boy. Professor Rail said she actually got to know Isaacs later in his life. He was, he, from what I understand, and, and I get it because I knew him, was a handful. He didn't take any crap, which I'm surprised didn't get him into trouble a lot more often. Isaacs told Professor Rail about one experience he had in 1939. He got sick on the road and spent a little extra time in Tennessee with a college student there. When he'd recovered, the two of them went to the train station to get Isaacs a ticket to Atlanta where he'd meet up with the rest of the team. The student and John had gotten caught up in a discussion. And so they end up walking through the door that was labeled white. So Isaacs goes up to the ticket taker and asks him if he can get a ticket. And the ticket taker refused. He just stood there with his arms folded. So Isaacs repeated his request to the ticket taker and said, can I have a ticket to Atlanta? And the ticket taker uses the N-word and says, you must be from up north. And Isaacs replied to him that, well, yes, I am. And he said, well, by golly, we do things differently down here. Isaacs, as I had mentioned, didn't take any mouth from anybody. And he said, well, then by golly, you ought to change. So then they go out the white door and come back through the, quote, colored door. And the ticket taker went from one side of his wire office to the other and said, boy, what is it that you want? The man gives Isaacs his ticket, but refuses to touch his hand. John says, oh, were you afraid you were going to get some germs or something from me? or maybe my blackness or coloredness might have come off on your hands. Says the ticket taker's face turned red, and that's when Isaacs picked up his ticket with two toothpicks. And he said, I have to be careful because I don't know what kind of germs I might get from you. So that was a pretty intense event. A lot of African-Americans at the time would not have survived that. And he did. Isaacs made it to Atlanta and he helps lead the Wrens to an amazing year. In the 1938-39 season, they had 112 wins and only seven losses. At one point, they had a 66-game winning streak. So, in the spring of 1939, they are one of 12 teams invited to the Chicago Herald Americans World Professional Basketball Tournament. Well, they called it a world tournament, but it wasn't a world tournament. <laughs> it was, you know, some of the top teams in the country. The Wrens were not the only Black team in the running. There was one other, the Harlem Globetrotters. That team had been founded in 1926 by a white man, Abe Saperstein, and they had a different philosophy from the Wrens. 
they won a lot of games, but they also made entertaining crowds a high priority, which meant that once they were ahead by enough points, they would often do tricks on the court. They're spinning the ball on their finger. They're putting the ball behind their back. You know, they're doing dribbling under their leg, which today we see, but kind of in a different way, or as part of the play. Over the years, some people have compared this to minstrelsy. Minstrel shows portrayed Black people as clownish, racist caricatures for white entertainment. Professor Rail says, in the case of the Globetrotters, she thinks it's complicated. You know what? This was making a living for a lot of these guys. And they were really good at what they did. So I think they did what they needed to do to survive. In any case, the Wrens and the Globetrotters were very different teams. But they were the same in two ways. One, they were really good. And two, all the players were Black. The tournament organizers decided to put these two teams on the same side of the bracket so that they couldn't face each other in the final championship game. They would be guaranteed a black and white matchup for the final. People didn't want to come to see an all-black team play an all-black team. So the Wrens beat the Globetrotters in the semifinal. Which means the Wrens made it to the finals. They would play an all-white team from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And the the Wrens had played them a couple of times during the season, and they'd lost a few and won a few. So this was going to be a good matchup. On March 28, 1939, 3,000 fans came out to the game. Most of them were rooting for Oshkosh. It wasn't too far away from Chicago. But African-American fans around the country were also waiting to hear the outcome. Because this was a symbolically important game. The first time a Black team had the chance to win a basketball championship. When the game begins, it's clear that the Wrens are going to run away with it. Even the Oshkosh Northwestern, the All-Stars local paper, later wrote, the Oshkosh team never really threatened. The game was basically over by halftime. The final score was 34 to 25. That was very symbolic of what African-Americans were capable of doing at the time to overcome the stereotypes that were out there, as well as overcoming odds that were against them. And so it was very, very important to them. It fulfilled Douglas's lifetime dream to see his team on top of the basketball world. This is something that he had worked for for decades, and he saw this happen. And he was overjoyed. After the game, Bob Douglas threw a banquet dinner for the team at a fancy hotel. He also gave them championship jackets. They had world-colored champions embroidered on the back. John Isaacs, when he saw his, got out a razor blade. John decided that they weren't the colored champions, they were the champions. So what he did was he cut out the word colored from his jacket. Now, the jacket just said, World Champions. The Wrens played for 26 years in all, from 1923 to 1949. That was the first official year of the NBA. In that first season, the NBA had no Black players. But when the league did integrate in 1950, the head coach of the New York Knicks was Joe Lapchick. 
the white player who once kissed the black star Tarzan Cooper on the court in Louisville. He signed Wren's star Nat Clifton to his team. Clifton was the first black player to sign an NBA contract. He went on to be elected to the Hall of Fame. So did four other Wrens and also owner Bob Douglas. Professor Rail said, you can see the legacy of the Wrens not just in the integration of the NBA, but also in the style of play that now dominates the game. They were watched by coaches all over the country whenever they played. They had a lot of playground-style moves that are currently used. Fast breaks they used a lot. And I think that also because their level of play it showed a lot of people that there was something to these black basketball players to show people that we can all work together and play together and be great together. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This podcast is produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.